Today we are talking about Christ, Jesus as the Christ. What does that mean? Uh, I saw somebody said, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And uh, I thought, let me talk a little bit about that since I am focusing on the kingdom of God and what God is bringing forth in humanity through the Christ, Jesus the Christ. Now, uh, the passages we're going to look at <coughs> in this is from Colossians 1, verse 25 to 27, Galatians chapter 2, and then one of the other main passages is towards the end um, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. We we're going to look at this concept of Christ in you. What does it mean? Just a shocker for you to begin with, there is not a scripture in the Bible that says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. There is not such a verse in the Bible. You might say, Betty, but that cannot be. I mean, there is such a scripture. Colossians 1 verse 27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You will see, yeah, you see, there it is. Well, it doesn't say Christ in me, the hope of glory. It says there, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that gives a contextual truth about that passage that makes us understand in such a greater way what this whole thing about Jesus the Christ actually is. By this I am not saying that Jesus doesn't live in us. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't have the Holy Spirit at all. As a matter of fact, we want to emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit inside us today <coughs> and how this power of the Spirit brings forth order how this power of the Spirit brings forth life, how this power of the Spirit brings forth the very dream of God in our hearts, how this power of the Spirit makes us find God inside our very own lives. Glory to God. Okay, now um, <clears throat> I'm going to read Colossians 1 verse 25 to 27 and then Galatians 2 verse 2. Then we're going to look at the Jewish concept of Jesus as the Messiah. We're going to look at what does it mean to anoint someone. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and then we're going to look at the Christ. What Christ means in the Greek. Uh, and then again a Jewish concept there of Messiah. What they expected of the Messiah. And then how that looks in the New Testament. So it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be such a long message. It's going to be short but greatly encouraging for all of us. Colossians 1 verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given unto me to you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, so he says here that this word of God was a mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. What he's saying there, there was a mystery and that the saints are now understanding what this mystery is. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now if you read this, and we're going to get to this at the end of the message as well, you will see that in the undertone of that passage, what Paul is saying is that it was a mystery that Jesus or that the Christ was also towards the Gentiles. And now to the saints, something that was hidden for ages and generations is now revealed. And that the concept of what Christ is and 
how Christ would manifest and what kind of a person he would be has now been laid bare. It has now been opened up. It's been revealed. And inside this concept of the Christ is included the Gentiles, which was a major uh, uh, thing in the Jewish time, which changed the whole concept of what the Christ would do and be. It would also change the concept of what the true problem would be with humanity. Remember I said a while back, I've been teaching and said, and I, I just believe it is true for everything. If you don't know what the problem is, you will you can have a wrong, you can diagnose it wrongly and give the wrong medicine. We need to know what the true problem is. And now we can go and look at the medicine that God gave. And by that medicine, we can kind of realize and look at what the true problem was. My son, uh, the other day, Henry, he, um, he got a pain in his chest and his heart started to beat wild. 11, 11 o'clock at night. <coughs> and uh, we got him to the hospital in, in emergency room. He spent the night there. They did the all the tests on his heart, blood tests, whatever. Maybe the young man's having a heart attack. We don't know what's going on. And uh, he came back. Now, his father, that's me now, <laughs> um, is a bit of an analytical person. So I asked him, so what did the doctor say? Now, Liana's always said that. When she's been to a place, been to the doctor, or uh, my kids go to the doctor, and I asked him, what did the doctor say? They say, well, you call the doctor in here because uh, I want all the information. I want to analytically know what did he say? And uh, my son basically says, 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 no, I've got inflammation. Uh, I said, on the heart. He says, well, I think so. Uh, then I was thinking immediately, if he's got inflammation in the heart, he's not supposed to be home. The first thing that I did was I said, give me the pills that he gave you. And then from that, uh, from the pills, I tried to find out what could be wrong, you know, while I'm calling the doctor. And the concept of looking at the medicine. Uh, is the analogy I'm trying to use here. You look at the medicine to see what's actually wrong. Now, he had an inflammation in a muscle in his chest, and uh, now that when you breathe and everything, and because it was right over the heart, felt like it was something wrong with his heart. There was actually just nothing wrong. He had a bit of an inflammation. He gyms every now and then, and uh, I think had a small tear in one of the muscles. Now, the point I'm making is this. If we don't know what's truly wrong we will use a wrong thing to solve the problem. But if we see how God solves the problem, then we can know what was truly wrong. And we can also know what healing we can expect from God. So here it says that, um, it basically says that it was a, a mystery to the Jews that the Gentiles that, that Christ would also be in the Gentiles or amongst the Gentiles and that he would also have his rulership over them. Let us read Galatians 2.20 and we're going to get more into what Colossians says. That's just introductory. Uh, Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So you see the scripture does teach that Christ is in us. I was just uh, teasing you guys a little bit there, saying that there is no scripture that says Christ in me, the hope of glory. Scripture says Christ in you, because the context was towards the Gentiles. But it is true that Christ does live in us. And uh, we're going to look at how Christ lives in us, by what force, by what power, how it 
basically works. Uh, because we can say, well, Christ lives in me, but Christ is also uh, at the right hand of the Father. And when uh, the Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, did Paul actually just have a look at his own heart, his inner man? Was it just a vision or was Christ outside of his body? Where was Christ? How does all of this work? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here is, Paul says something very interesting. He says, I don't live, but the life I now live, it is the Christ that lives in me. And now in the flesh, the life I live, <coughs> I actually live by the faith of the Son of God. What that actually means is the life I now live, I live by having faith in God. But more than that, I am living by the faithfulness because that word faith can also mean faithfulness. The life we now live is by how faithful God is towards us in manifesting his kingdom in us, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. I want to stand uh, uh, still at that verse a little bit. So many times we want to preach a gospel which is about how faithful we must be towards God. But here Paul comes and he says that he believes in Jesus. And the, the faith that he has in Jesus is the faith that Jesus did die and that he was crucified with him and that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead and then after this resurrection, that Jesus ascended on high, which meant that this resurrected man, Jesus, went to occupy a position wherein he sits as the God or the ruler of the whole earth, from where he now shows his faithfulness towards humanity in bringing the world into the heavenly uh, dimension or the heavenly power. What that means is, uh, and we can liken it to politics, and today we're going to liken a lot of things to politics because we're talking about Christ. When we talk about Christ, we're actually now considering a political figure. Uh, the, 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 the Jews back then didn't see the Christ as a savior that would save people from sin. They saw the Christ as a political figure. Now, to explain the faithfulness of Christ that Paul's talking about here that he says the life I now live in the flesh I don't live by my own power but by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me what he's talking about is uh, it, it can be seen as equivalent to somebody voting for a certain person uh, politically and then this person becomes the president now you would say if that president can keep to what he has promised. I mean, in our political races, we've got people, you know, uh, in the political rallies, in the rally, they will promise so many things that they cannot do. I don't know of a political leader that can make true uh, what he has promised because they promise you heaven and earth, and they, they promise you so many things, which is so difficult to get to work. But imagine now, you can get a political leader that has promised you certain things. And now, he, you vote for him and he becomes the president. And you will now say, well, you see the life I now live? I live, the life I now live, this good life I now live, is by the faithfulness 
of that president. Because he's keeping to his promise. That's why it is going well with me. And that is the concept I find in Galatians 2.20. And let's read it again with that mindset of faithfulness and a faithful uh, uh, president. I am crucified with Christ. In other words, the death that Christ died, I died with him. Nevertheless, I live. I am alive now. Although I died with Christ, I find that I've got a brand new life now. Yet, it is not I, this new life that I live. It's not me being good at being a good Jew or being good at living a good life. It's, it is Christ that lives in me. Now he explains. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith or the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that would be equivalent to say, I'm a good businessman, but I voted for this new president and this new president brought an economic freedom that we have never seen and the extraordinary good business that I am now doing is not me or my ability whereby I'm running a successful business. Yes, I was a businessman, but this good that you see now is not me. It is the president keeping to his promise. That is basically what he is saying. So we as Christians in the church, we don't live by our faithfulness to keeping to commandments. As Christians, we have got our trust in the faithfulness of God towards humanity in Christ. And that is why he is saying there that the life that I now live in the flesh, I don't live by uh, my own faithfulness. I live it by the faithfulness of God. And this faithfulness of God towards Paul, wherein Paul has a new life, he calls it Christ living in him. Can you see that he is alluding to the influence of rulership over a person's life? Um, let's, let's say, uh, let's take Nelson Mandela. When he became president, before he became president, we and bef before there was a, a, a new South Africa, there were certain words that we could use towards blacks, which is completely illegal now. You go to jail for using those words now. Now, before the new South Africa, you would use those words, and inside your heart you might feel a little bit that it's wrong, but it was so much part of a way of talking that it was part of your life. Um, but after the new South Africa, you would find a lot of white folk that would use certain words towards blacks don't use it anymore. And they cannot say, well, that's because I'm now such a good man uh, and that I've stopped using those words. What they must actually say is, well, the good life you see me living now, since Nelson Mandela is president, it is not I who live. This is Mandela living in me. That's actually how you should see it. Now, I don't want to talk politics. I'm just using an analogy so that you can see what Paul had in his mind when he was talking about Christ in me, the hope of glory. 
I remember when my children were small, I was teaching them, listen, Jesus lives in your heart. And uh, for many years in my life, I kind of soothed myself or encouraged myself with a knowledge that Jesus lives in my heart. And the comfort I got was basically the comfort of not being alone. Now, many of us don't want to be alone. Uh, I spoke to, to my son yesterday, and we were just having a meal together and everything, and uh, he was talking about people that are very successful in online trading. And he said that these people are very lonely people. They just sit there with a computer. They make their money there, and especially some of the successful people, they don't feel that they want to go and give talks and speeches about how to, how to trade. They are people that are alone a lot. And we want the comfort of the presence of someone else. And so many times in the connection or in the context of Christ in us, we have this comfort of the Almighty God is inside me or Jesus is inside me. I am not alone. And the comfort that we have is the comfort of we see an enemy and I am not alone. Uh, you, you don't feel alone. And we find that many times. When you've got a certain view about something, I find it in myself I would study the scriptures and I would see a certain thing in the scriptures and I'm so excited about it. The first thing I do is I go and tell Helena to see what she, to see what she thinks. Uh, when she says, man, yeah, that sounds good. It, it, it feels nice because we've got some, I'm not alone anymore. There's someone else seeing it. Then I will search the web and I will find there's some other theologian that says this. And I would say, wow, that's good. I'm not alone in this matter. And what we've had is we've had Christ in me, the hope of glory, only uh, aiding us to the point of not feeling alone in the majority of cases. We just feel, I'm not alone. Christ is in me. I'm okay. He lives in me. Well, when I, when I was good, he lived in me, and now I'm bad. I still know he's somewhere in there. He lives in me. And that's kind of a context when we understood Christ in you. And we wanted to explain the um, omnipresence of God that way. But when Paul comes and he talks about Christ in him, he's got a little bit of a different context there. More of what I've explained in the political context, wherein he is under the rule or the power of a powerful leader, bringing forth, living in him, bringing forth the holy life in him by the life of the very one the leader, in this case Christ, that is faithful towards Paul. I want to tell you, God is faithful towards you, man. He's faithful in bringing forth his life uh, in you. That is where faithfulness is, where we kind of experience God as unfaithful, I would say, is where we put him on the side and we said, well, let me try by following some principles and trying to do good things to get something to work and so forth, where we don't see him as the one that will come and bring forth who he is in us. Now, the Jewish concept of anointing is what we're going to uh, touch on next. And the reason why I want to talk about this is uh, the anointing. When the, the anointing, when somebody's anointed or gets anointed, we've had the idea of a feeling of the Holy Spirit. There's an anointing on the preacher, meaning he is really got a very hot message today that's touching my heart. We call that anointed. 
uh, or when somebody pray for somebody gets healed, we will say that's a real anointed person. Now, when we look at the Jewish concept of anointing uh, and Jesus as God's anointed, it's a little bit different than what we see in the church and what we understood in charismatic circles. We will find in 1 Samuel 16, and all of this is in your notes there, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 to 3, and then 11 to 13, we talk, we see here how uh, Samuel was basically complaining to God about Saul. And let's read from verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him for reigning over Israel? Fill then your horn with oil, and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided me a king amongst his sons. And then Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. So can you see that anointing here had a lot to do with who is the king, who is the ruler? So we find that Samuel does not want to go to Jesse, the father of David, to anoint David as king, because should he anoint him as king, should he put that oil on him, it would be understood by Saul as something much more than what we see anointing today in the church. If anointing back then was seen as anointing is seen now, that we're going to put oil on him and he's going to fall down under the power, uh, you know, then Saul wouldn't have cared about this at all but anointing in that time was actually talking about a consecration wherein somebody is acknowledged as a king or a priest or whatever you would anoint the person unto so we find here that uh, Samuel does not want to go and anoint David and then God gave him a plan and said to him, listen, man, this is how it's going to work. Take an heifer with you and say that I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then ask the family of Jesse to go and the brothers who go with, with a sacrifice. And then there uh, you take out at the sacrifice, you take out the oil and then you will anoint the one whom I show unto you. And then we find in verse 13 that Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed in the midst of his brethren David and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we find that in this anointing, it was an inauguration almost. It was a consecration, a set apart for a specific task. That is what it was. And we find the very same, I've just put another example there in Exodus 29 from verse 9 to 14, where Aaron basically anointed his sons, consecrated them. It, and it had to do with blood and oil and all those kind of things. And when that happened, everybody would know these are the sons of the high priest. They have been anointed or uh, they have been consecrated to the work of priests. Now, now we get to Jesus the Christ. The word Christ, Christos, is the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. Anointed. Now, if we look back at Samuel and how he anointed David, it doesn't mean that uh, David 
by that anointing has a supernatural power. The supernatural power David had, or the power David had, was by the Spirit of the Lord that would come onto David. The Spirit means the very life of God. The very life of God would enter into David and bring forth life through David. But the anointing act itself, the oil, there was no power in that. There was nothing in that. It was only seen by the people of that time as this one is the one that God has chosen through whom he would lead or through whom he would deliver his people. So when we talk about Jesus the Christ, uh, and we see in the Bible, the, the word Jesus alone is used just a, just a few times. It's always used as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And we find that the writers of the Bible, the New Testament, wanted to really bring something home. When they said Jesus Christ, Christ was not the surname of Jesus, like you would say Bertie Brits or Eliana Brits or uh, John Piper or whoever you want to call. It, it is not the surname. It was something completely different in the jewish sense to call yourself the christ would be a major major thing they understood certain things about that now when jesus would be called the christ he would be called it, it's, it's the word christos and it means to anoint or to basically then the seen as the anointed one. Now, what would the Jews understand as the anointed one or the Messiah? That the Jews don't like to use the word Messiah because Christians has got the Christian connection to it. They use the word, rather, even, even English-speaking Jews would rather use Messiah instead of Messiah. But what that would speak about, and I found this from, um, I think, Judaism 101, is a website teaching a lot about Jewish traditions and so forth. And this is what it says. It says the Messiah, or the Messiah, will bring about political and spiritual redemption for the Jewish people by bringing us back to Israel and restoring Jerusalem. This can be found in Isaiah 11, uh, Jeremiah 23, and so forth. I've got the verses there for you. Um, he will establish a government in Israel that will be at the center of all world government, both for Jews and Gentiles, and he will rebuild the temple and reestablish its worship. He will restore the religious court system of Israel and establish Jewish law as the law of the land. Now, what the Jews understood the Messiah to be is somebody who is enabled by God to be a political leader that would free Jerusalem or free the Jews from any oppression, will free the redeem the, the, the Jewish people uh, out of political oppression as well as spiritual redemption. Spiritual redemption, the Jews didn't understand spiritual redemption as the Messiah saving them from their sins. They understood it as the Messiah making it possible for them to exercise what they believe, which was the old law systems and all those kind of things. That's, that's what it was all about. Now, <clears throat> Um, they also believed in the Olama Ba, which was basically the Messianic age, wherein this Messiah 
would rule from Jerusalem and he would rule basically the whole world politically and they would have the Jewish system in place. They would have the court system based on, uh, like the Muslims, they want Sharia law. The, the Jews would want the law of the, the, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and I mean the Old Testament, they would want that Old Testament Bible as the law whereby they would govern the whole world, meaning the system of uh, stoning a person when they commit fornication and those kind of things, that will be brought in again. Uh, th they would want that, but they also believe that there will be such good governance that that will actually also not be po uh, needed. So that was what the Jews had in mind with Jesus as the Messiah. Now, to say to a Jew that, to say to a Gentile, Christ in you, the hope of glory, would be absolute blasphemy for the Jew, because that's not what they believe. They would believe that Jesus, or not Jesus, the Messiah, would come and be amongst the uh, Jews, delivering them from the oppression of Rome and political oppression, spiritual oppression. He would not be amongst the Gentiles. He would be amongst the Jews. He would be in the Jews. And when they would understand the Messiah in me, they didn't think of a spiritual in. They thought that the Messiah is now amongst the Jews. He's come to live amongst us. It is now God with us, and he's now going to deliver us. He's going to have an army. He's going to have a sword. He's going to deliver his people. That's what they had in mind. And now Paul goes around and he says, there's a mystery. Christ is not just amongst the Jews, but he's also the Messiah of the Gentile. Now, the moment you say that he's the Messiah of the Gentile, you have to redefine salvation. All of a sudden, all of this, what they thought would take place, is not going to take place anymore. There's a redefinition of what Messiah means. The main point that I'm making here is that we can see the Messiah is not only the Messiah of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. The Jewish mind would not be able to understand the concept of the Messiah being for the Gentiles since they were the people that were oppressing the Jews. He would be a great political leader that would liberate the Jews from the Gentile oppression, is what they thought. But we find that Paul comes with something completely different. And now I'm going to explain what I see this Messiah is. The Messiah was the one that has come to deliver his people from oppression. And the oppression that was over people was death and sin. That is the oppression. Jesus Christ was crucified, and in his crucifixion, there was great significance. In his death and in his resurrection, his death and his resurrection to the Jewish mind back then, seeing Jesus the Messiah, spelt victory over all political power, him being the physical king of the earth, as well as him being 
being the ruler over the biggest problem humanity has, which is death. Putting man at a place where he does not need the law anymore, for we now have someone that has enough power to bring forth his victory in people, not by them, by, by them receiving a law, but by them receiving the Spirit of this Christ, the Spirit of God. That is what he had in mind. So, when, when Paul looked at the resurrected Jesus, what he was saying is, he saw a God that, would, that brought forth a salvation, and he took a man, Jesus, put this man at the right hand of God, meaning making this man the God over the world, wherein a God rules, and he is now ruling over the world, manifesting his kingdom in people, which is simply by and in people that trust him. It's by the Spirit in people that simply trust him, where it gets the works of the law out of the way, where it gets man's mortality out of the way, out of the equation, and where it is all about the rulership of this man Jesus bringing forth life in this world. You know, I was driving um, to Stellenbosch yesterday and I was sitting chatting to my wife and I, we looked at the world, we looked at politics, we looked at what was going on. There was a person driving in front of me and... Um, they didn't load the truck correctly and all of these crusher dust stones start to fall from this truck and so many cars just get all these stones all over it. So I pulled the guy over, called uh, their, the, the, uh, the owner of the truck and said, listen, this is going on. They, they will ha what, the, what they will have to do is they'll have to reload the truck right there. So they'll have to bring machines and get the truck off the road and see what they're going to do. Um, and then I drove on and as I was speaking, and then I spoke to Helena, I said, you know, if we look at this world, a small thing like that now, not loading a truck correctly. I mean, it's 2019. We can't even build a truck that doesn't leak stones. Uh, human ability is so weak that we cannot set the world right. It is impossible by human power. The only thing that can do this is, or the only person that can do this, is the Almighty God. And he came 2,000 years ago and he did something that was unimaginable by man. I mean, we try to have nations live a little bit in peace with one another. We don't even fathom, we don't even try to conquer physical death. We, don't, we know it's impossible. But Jesus came and he conquered physical death. Then God took this resurrected man who's not subject to to the temptations of this world, glorified this man, put this man at the right hand of God as God in this world and gave all dominion to him and said to him, rule with your life over this world. And those who sub submit themselves to that rule, we find that that rulership is now inside them by the very Spirit of God. It's, it would be equivalent to believing in Nelson Mandela. When you believe in Nelson Mandela, you find maybe the softness or the tenderness or the tenacity or whatever that was in him, it starts to live in you. The very same way, as we believe in this man, Jesus Christ, that he was raised from the dead and that he is the Lord, the majesty on high, 
we would call Him Your Majesty. When we believe in Him, we find that His Spirit enters us, which is His power, which we now say that Jesus, the man who is the Christ, the enabled one to set the world right. Not right with God. I mean, we are right with God, but to set the world right in fixing the world to the point that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. That is Jesus' job. And the Bible says he must rule and he must reign until all enemies is defeated, of which the last one would be death in people's lives. Then he will hand the kingdom over to the Father and say, basically, Father, what you have enabled me, anointed me to do, I have done. And now we would find God in all and in everything. That is Jesus' job. He's the Messiah. And the most beautiful thing now that Paul is declaring when he quotes uh, or when he writes Colossians 1.27, he says, listen, the mystery is not that, the mystery is, is this. The Messiah is not delivering the Jewish people from the Gentiles. The Messiah is delivering the world from sin and death by his authority and his victory and his power. That is the Messiah, and He is the Messiah of you. He is not just the Messiah of the Jews. He is also the one that He is ruling in you. When we say Christ in you, the hope of glory, what He was saying is, He says, listen, Gentiles, I want to say to you that we didn't always understand this as saints, but God has now revealed to us His saints, revealing, talking about the, the Jewish people that came to believe in Christ. He's revealed to the saints that uh, Christ is also ruling over the Gentiles' sin and death, giving them also the hope of the resurrection. That is what Christ in you, the hope of glory, means. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is this. The rule of Christ is also over you, wherein he is also by his Holy Spirit bringing forth the new in you, giving you Gentiles the hope of the resurrection. That is what Christ in you, the hope of glory, means. And that's what Paul was saying. It is not I who live, but it is the dominating power, if I can put it that way, of this resurrected Christ that is working in me. You know, I'm going to, I must actually end off, but um, let me first say two, th I'm going to say one thing and then we're going to end off. When we talk about Christ in, you, in us, it's beautiful to see Jesus in me. But Jesus in me solves loneliness. But when we see Jesus in us as more than just a man, a little Jesus living in us, but we actually understand that Christ is in every fiber of my being. Christ, don't see it as a person. See it as the anointed one that has come to solve the issue. If I can see the solving, the issue solving power grabbing every part of my being as I believe that this man was raised from the dead, elevated glorified 
put at the right hand of God, meaning as God, he is now over this world, and that I am subject to his rule, he will rule all sin out of my life. He will rule all death out of my life, since that is the victory that he has accomplished 2,000 years ago. I would find that when I say Christ in me or the mind of Christ, you know, I have the mind of Christ. What that means is to me, I have the mind that Jesus rules over my mind in bringing the thoughts that is his into my mind, not by me trying to think the thoughts of God, but by God thinking in me by this majestic victory that he has accomplished in taking a man, putting him at the right hand of God as the Messiah of all people. So Christ in me, the mind of Christ, and all those things finds a little bit of a different perspective in this that we are now seeing his rulership as that which brings forth life everywhere. So I am not... I don't have vain, puffed-up glory. And that is what it talks about in Corinthians when it talks about the mind of Christ, but you have the mind of Christ. He's actually talking about different logics on how to get things done. And then he says, but we don't have that logic. We don't have a logic of law. We don't have a logic of sacrificing to idols. We don't have that logic. The, the logic we have is we've got the mind of Christ. Who will instruct God on what to do? He was talking about certain uh, uh, good deeds we try to do to tell God how to save. He says, we don't have a mindset of how things must take place. We've got one mindset, and that's the mindset that we've got a Christ. We've got the mind that Christ will do it. That's what he was basically saying. And when Christ does it, it brings forth in me a mind that thinks of what is good and kind and noble and thought-worthy. Amen. Glory to God. Let me read Ephesians 3, and I'm going to end off with that. It says, which in other ages was not made known. It talks about a mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This can be directly connected to verse 27, Colossians. I've also put it in the notes on the last page like that. Verse 6 says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, Here's the mystery revealed. What is the mystery revealed? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ by the gospel or the good news that Jesus was raised from the dead. So the mystery was that it was not just for the Jews. The mystery was that the Jews was just as much a problem as what the Gentiles was. The mystery was that the Messiah will not deliver the Jews, but that he will deliver humanity and whosoever believes upon him from death. We find a redefinition of what the true problem is. The problem is not anymore another nation oppressing me. The problem is not anymore am I worshipping at the right mountain? Am I paying my tithes right? That is not the problem. The problem is not anymore uh, 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 nations and politically and all those kind of things. The problem is death and the victory is Christ. And as Christ reigns in all people that believe upon him, we will find a big change in this world, and that is what he is busy with. Glory to God. Now, um, <clears throat> I trust that you will take the following home. 
know this. You live by the faithfulness of Jesus, not your faithfulness. Paul said, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faithfulness of Jesus towards me. And his faithfulness towards us is called this rulership in us, which is called the power of Christ or Messiah over me, deliverance over me. Think of the examples I've used politically of Mandela. We can even use a, a, a political leader that delivers you from financial oppression. And you would say, the financial success I have now is not I who live, but it is this president who is actually living in me. That president might be at the White House or at the state building somewhere or whatever, but he is living in you in the sense of his rule and his force and his spirit, what he believes in and his life that he lives, the, the magnitude of his presence is, has entered your heart through belief and that spirit that you have now received, which is of him, the spirit of Christ, that spirit brings forth a life in you and that is Christ in you. Glory to God. A lot to think about, a bit of a challenge to our traditional way of thinking of it, uh, but very, very powerful. Thank you so much that you have slotted in in watching this. Uh, share this with friends. If you've liked this, please make sure you like it on YouTube that more people can hear this message. At the end of the day, I want to tell you there will just be one thing left on this planet, and that is the full manifestation of the rule of Christ. It would fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. We would find all people, all things, everything here flooded with the fullness of God and that's where everything will end we have seen the end of it all in the resurrected glorified Jesus amen and amen thank you for watching I'll see you again next week God bless